Good morning, friends. Uh, we are returning to Luke's gospel this morning, following our series on Passion Week that covered Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday last week. What a great service, wasn't that? Uh, we'll be in Luke 18, uh, beginning in verse 15, this morning with what seems like a fairly ordinary ministry moment on Jesus' road to the cross. He's actually, he's getting quite close. Um, we're, we're in, as I mentioned, Luke 18 this morning. In the very next chapter, chapter 19, we'll see his triumphal entry. So he's, he's, he's drawing close to what he came for. And uh, as, he's, as he's on the road to Jerusalem, today specifically, uh, we see him engaging with children, and in particular, engaging with the disciples over their response to children being brought to Jesus. And it's important for us to see that there's really no disconnect between what Jesus is doing here in our passage this morning and what we saw him doing uh, last week as we, as we celebrated both the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus is going all the way to the cross for sinners. But the only one who will receive his gift are those who have been brought to see their desperate need for him. So today, he's going to drive home the point of our dependence on him with the explanation of our need for a particular kind of child-likeness. And uh, I think you'll agree with me by the time we're done, this is very, very good shepherding. Uh, our passage comes on the heels of a parable that Kenny actually preached a couple of weeks ago before our Passion Week uh, series. He preached the parable on the, um, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector offering their prayers in the temple, and, and, and it was told back in verse 9 that that parable was told to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, the difference between those two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, in that parable is not their desperate need. Both of them were desperately needy, weren't they? The difference is that by God's mercy, the tax collector's eyes were opened to see his desperate need. Whereas the Pharisee instead inaccurately praised his own perceived sufficiency and merit. And this is an ongoing theme in, uh, in Luke's gospel, right? The rich young ruler in uh, next week's passage, he, he's also going to resolutely cling to his idol because he's blind to the fact of how needy he is. And the blind beggar at the end of uh, Luke chapter 18 outside of Jericho, he's blind but ironically, we'll see something of his need, as will prove to be the case with Zacchaeus in chapter 19. The contrast in comparison goes on and on and on. Jason preached the parable of the prodigal son not too long ago for us. There's two lost sons. One is brought to the point of perceiving it. The other, at least at the end of the story, not as clearly that he does. Here's the point. What Jesus is teaching in, in, in these uh, parables and in, in, in real life encounters, it's a really big deal. His purpose is to paint an extended portrait of the kind of person who will benefit from the sacrifice that he is about to offer. So we want to pick up uh, our, our, that theme in our passage this morning. We're actually going to pick it up in verse 14, which is from the preceding parable for the sake of context. Uh, so let me read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive into uh, what the Lord has on offer for us this morning. Beginning in verse 14, this is Jesus' response <clears throat> to the tax collector's uh, prayer. 
I tell you, this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And then, and then here's the key. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, our uh, simple request as we go to your word this morning is that you would meet us in your word in powerful ways that increase our childlike trust in the provision of your son. We ask it in his name. Amen. So clearly, clearly Jesus does want the little children to come to him. And we will say more about that uh, with some practical application uh, here in a bit. But the main point that Jesus is communicating both to the disciples and to us is this. You must receive the kingdom of God like a child or you will not enter at all. You must receive the kingdom of God like a child or you will not enter at all. So let's set the stage here. Folks in verse uh, 15 are bringing kids to Jesus. This is probably not a one-off, right? A one-time kind of thing in Jesus's ministry. Luke is recording it for us uh, here. It's probably a recurring kind of thing in the ministry of Jesus. These parents uh, want to bring even their infants to Jesus to be touched by him, which of course is an expression of his blessing. Um, That's understandable, right? This is an era of of, uh, high infant mortality, and certainly the reputation about Jesus has gotten out that his touch is both powerful and merciful, isn't it? Uh, Many, many months ago, I preached the passage from Luke chapter 5 where Jesus healed a leper uh, by means of his physical touch. It was such a kindness, wasn't it? And he's, of course, not the only one, uh, but it was such a kindness. He didn't have to touch him to heal the leper, but he did so in a way that risked the perception of himself becoming contaminated uh, by this man's uncleanness. That's something we all long for, isn't it? The powerful and merciful touch of Jesus. I mean, in a, in, a measure, in a measure, you can experience that embrace now through his church and to an extent in his word, but, but isn't there a real sense in which all of us groan for the day in which we will behold Jesus face to face and see the scarred hands and get engulfed in the bear hug to end all bear hugs, even as he permanently and perfectly wipes every tear away? I, the older I get, the more of a teddy bear I become. When that, when that, when that, like, like Jesus is going to have to pry me off of him with a crowbar. <laughs> He's going to be like, I got to hug other people too, you know? Um, I can't wait. I can't wait. Powerful and merciful. But the disciples hinder the advance of these families who are seeking this blessing, right, for their children. And, and it's probably because they view infants, right? They're infants, so they have to be brought to Jesus. They have to be carried to Jesus. Somebody else has to get them there. So, so they're contributing nothing but need, nothing but need. And so in the disciples' mind, it's, it's, it's probably pretty clear to them 
that these little guys are not a very valuable use of the Lord's time. Uh, one author I read put the perspect- their perspective on infants like this. Uh, need take, need take, all day long. Children don't bring home the bacon, they just eat it. Whatever they don't throw on the floor. And then they expel it, and they need others to take care of that too. End of quote. Not much of a positive contribution, right? But there's a glaring irony here, isn't there? Jesus chides the disciples' misguided response to these little ones. And as he expands his reasoning in the latter half of verse 16, uh, in the latter half of verse 16, again, he says, For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then in verse 17, uh, where again he tells us, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. As he expands his reasoning, we learn that the disciples' mistake with these little ones comes fundamentally from the fact that they've misunderstood themselves. In other words, in other words, the disciples correctly see that the infants are bringing need and not contribution. They see that correctly. But instead of seeing themselves in a similarly dependent light, they are tempted to view themselves as essential, essentially as contributors and not fundamentally as dependent receivers. If you recall the Pharisees' prayer from the previous parable, it's, you can almost hear the disciples muttering under their breath, I thank you, God, that I'm not like these energy-draining, non-contributing little ones, right? How deceptive is our desire to merit God's favor, to, to be seen as making some essential contribution, or at least to stand out by comparison to someone else. If nobody else, at least maybe I stand out by comparison to the infant with a soil diaper, See, the disciples have forgotten who they were, haven't they? They were not upwardly mobile, socially prominent, titans of industry, movers and shakers. They themselves were no counts. They were tax collectors and fishermen. They're guys who would talk a good game, but then fold like a house of cards when the chips are really down. We saw last week in Eric's message that, that the council uh, in Acts 4 was astonished. So this is after the resurrection, right? They were astonished by the boldness of Peter and John on the fact of, and this is what the passage says, on account of the fact that they were uneducated common men. So on the surface, they're unimpressive, aren't they? They hadn't been formally trained. They weren't rabbinically trained. They weren't super scholars. What did they have? The same verse in that passage says that they had been with Jesus, and they had gotten the point. So their courage after the resurrection was not mistakenly placed in themselves, but in him. See, the remarkable thing about the apostles is not the apostles, but the one who works through them. And it's crucial that we see ourselves in the same way. Do we understand ourselves to be fundamentally needy, or do we view ourselves in our quiet and innermost thoughts as fundamental assets that Jesus should be grateful to have. See, friends, if we get this point wrong, nothing else will ultimately be right. Again, Jesus says in verse 17, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
So there's a danger, right, manifested in blocking children's access from coming to Jesus. And the danger is that those who would do that, those who would block a a dependent little one's access to Jesus, they're ultimately blocking themselves by disdaining what is most necessary to receive the kingdom of Christ. So what is that thing? What is that thing about children that is most necessary to emulate? Well, let's first be clear what that thing is not, okay? Their advantage, little ones, infants, their advantage is not cuteness. They are cute. That's not the advantage Jesus has in mind. Their advantage is not innocence. It's not innocence. Children, little ones, are not yet experienced in sin. But they are, like all of the rest of us, born into this world touched by sin or affected by sin. Like all of us, they inherit Adam's fallen nature and guilt. I would refer you to the latter half of Romans 5 for more on that if that's something you'd like to look more into. One of the ways, very sadly, that we know that little ones also have a fallen nature is that sadly, sometimes they experience death, the primal consequence of sin. I know many of you have grieved over the death of little ones, miscarriage and the like. And the point of this passage is not mainly to tackle the question of what happens in those instances to your little ones. But I raise it briefly because for some of you, it may very naturally arise as the palpable question, right? Longing of your heart. And I would say that we, we at Grace have, have a wonderful ministry and have had a wonderful ministry over the years to those who have suffered and grieved miscarriages and, uh, and the like. I'll say this. I think the answer to the question of the little one um, Many, many years ago, John MacArthur wrote a book on the topic, and the title of which was Safe in the Arms of Jesus. I, I think the answer to the question is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is an answer with good news and a lot of hope. But it is not because the little one was innocent. And, and so I just I, I throw that out there because that may be a, a, a palpable burden for some of you. And if that's the case, um, I would be happy to talk with you after the service to recommend some resources Uh, perhaps offer some encouragement, and I know many others would as well. So, but in any case, if, if cuteness and innocence are not the attributes that Jesus has in mind here, what, what's his point? And here's the answer. His answer is that the inherently dependent character of these little ones and their utter lack of self-sufficiency. So inherently dependent character, utter lack of self-sufficiency is the quality that portrays the condition that is needed to enter the kingdom. That's the answer. In a nutshell, it's their unashamed childlike dependence. And in that respect, Jesus says we must become like children. When you think about it from that vantage point, Utterly dependent need is not a nuisance, but a necessity. See, if we view a humble admission of need as a disqualifier, we'll do what the Pharisee in the previous parable did, won't we? We'll settle for shallow, comparative righteousness. We will selectively edit our spiritual resumes 
so as to convince ourselves that we are somehow necessary assets to Jesus. The fact is, we're all needy in the presence of Christ. We just have to be able to admit that and then to rest instead in his provision for us. So I wonder, friends, have you done that before? Have you sensed your need and inadequacy? That's not a disqualifier. Jesus says it's an advantage if you will admit it and bring your need to him. We'd love to help you with that this morning. So Jesus obviously, though, is not saying become like a child in every respect, right? It's a particular respect. He's not saying become like children in their naivete. You might think of 1 Corinthians 13, 11 here. He's not talking about uh, refusing to grow up into adult responsibilities. Perhaps thinking of, uh, you might think of 1 Corinthians 14, 20 in this case. If we could use, if we could use uh, specific terms to make the distinction that I think Jesus would commend to us, we, I think we could say this. Jesus commends to us childlikeness with respect to trust and not childishness with respect to things like the rejection of maturity or the embrace of folly. So childlikeness, yes. Childishness, no. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that, that broadly, according to Scripture, it, it, it's simultaneously the case that parents are meant to be a gift to children because children need help outgrowing childishness and folly. So, so parents are, are, are designed as a blessing for children, but it is also true that children are meant to be a gift to parents and to church family and to extended family. Why? Because children provide a recurring object lesson of humble, dependent need without which no one enters the kingdom. And that's the key point from Jesus this morning. If you don't come to Christ according to that pattern of humbly dependent need, you won't come into his kingdom at all. Charles Spurgeon uh, preached a passage on, or a sermon on this passage. He said uh, very effectively, I think, this. He said, the little child receives Christ humbly. He never dreams of merit or purchase. I do not recollect ever having met a child who had to battle with self-righteousness in coming to Christ. A child cannot say, Lord, I have been a constant attendant at church for years. I've taken the sacrament regularly for half a century. Neither can he say with the Pharisee, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. No, when a little one believes in the Lord Jesus, it is always with a heart clear of boasting and with a soul which sings, in my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And just as a quick side note, that kind of dependence does not inhibit good works. It actually empowers our good works because it, it encourages, us to, encourages us to know that the Lord is the one who is at work in us to make them count. So, so the apostles, again, in Acts 4, they are freed on the basis of the sufficiency of Christ to just be faithful. Just be faithful and to trust the Lord to give the growth in his time. Now, um, to be sure, little ones don't stay little. And as they grow more experienced living out of their sin nature, they also begin to abhor being needy creatures, right? Just like the rest of us. 
You can see that pretense of self-deception in the, for example, in the, in the feverish insecurity of the ever-shifting junior high pecking order. It's, it's a fear of man-based comparative anxiety that it, it's desperately seeking to have at least one other person to feel better than, right? At least one other person. And, and in that setting, the projection of anything that resembles need feels like throwing red meat to the pack. Now, I know junior hires are mostly in uh, the youth service right now, but I, I want you to know I'm not, I don't say that to pick on you. Right? Adults are equally prone to insecurity and fear of man and comparative righteousness. We're just more practiced at hiding it. The point being, this need, whether it's an adult, junior, you know, this need for the humble acknowledgement of our insufficiency, which leads to the abandonment of self-reliance and turns instead to rely on Christ, that, it's unnatural to fallen humans. It's un, or, or we, could, we could put it differently, couldn't we? It requires a supernatural work of grace. And uh, Eric Twistleman, I think I see you over there. We'll see if I'm, uh, if I'm right about this, but I, I think that's a point that will be powerfully shown in next week's message too. Eric says I'm right. He'll tell you more next week. In any case, uh, in view of the disciples' misunderstanding, these little ones seem like small potatoes to them. So they hinder their coming to Jesus. As we've seen, Jesus opposes their hindrances because he loves, he loves to receive and to shepherd the inefficient and the admittedly needy. And that's good news for all of us because I'm looking at inefficient and admittedly needy people and you're looking at one too. As we've noted a few times now in Luke's gospel, one of the effects of being found and rescued from ourselves by the good shepherd is, I think, I think this phrase was originally coined by Kinney, is that found people find people. People who have been found by the good shepherd lead others to the good shepherd. In other words, in other words once, you, once you come to understand yourself as being in this state of dependence on Jesus, you'll begin to find it more difficult to look down on others who bring obvious need, but not obvious contribution. You'll be increasingly the kind of person who would bring, for example, children to Jesus and others that the Pharisee uh, might look down on. The disciples became those kind of ambassadors, and we can too. So it's important for us to think carefully as a church and parents and extended family, how, how, how we might actively promote and, and even carry little ones to the Lord as a reflection of how much we depend on Christ to carry us, right? So with respect, Grace, to the children in our care, it's worth asking, are we ushering them towards Jesus? Are we helping them see their need of Him? Or are we even in, in, in ways that are that are unknown, unrecognized to us, sort of shooing them away from Jesus. Uh, while it's not the main point, um, I do think found, since found people find people is a valid point, it's an appropriate point in this passage, the goal in what follows is to offer a buffet of thoughts on bringing little ones to Jesus. Uh, these are conversation starters, they cannot all be unpacked here. I'm, I'm flinging jello at the wall, 
And uh, it, these are prompts for parents to discuss later on, for grace groups to discuss later on, for those who have a hand in ministering to little ones at grace to reflect later on. I, I realize that in, in, in sharing some of these recommendations, some of these considerations, I'm mainly preaching to the, cry, the choir because this is the care of children is excellently, excellently done at grace. It is excellently done at grace. I think of Adventure Week and children's ministry and so many homes in which you guys are raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But our prayer is to excel, excel still more, right? So, so these, these thoughts might be obvious to many, uh, perhaps helpful to some. I have a list of 10 prompts on bringing little ones to Jesus. And if that sounds like a lot, the first draft had 21. So, whittling away. You can, Rick Floyd, you can tell me after first service which ones shouldn't be on the list in second service. We'll whittle it down even more. <laughs> I love you, my friend. All right. Number one. Begins with prayer. Prayer life in general, prayer life in general is an indicator, or the lack of a prayer life, right, is, an, is a very good indicator of our sense of dependence on the Lord. If we sense that we are dependent on the Lord, that, that tends to accentuate prayer life, doesn't it? And, and then when you think about this in relation to, to parenting, parents, what you most, if you're a Christian parent, what you most desire for your child to have, you are not capable of giving. A parent cannot circumcise the heart of their child. You can be faithful, you can pray, you can toil, you can discipline, you can teach, you can train, you can evangelize. But isn't it amazing? Isn't it, I mean, I think it's for our own good, but, but, but even, even as parents, we have to depend on the Lord to bring our children to the Lord. <laughs> um, by the way, that's why we respond with a vow of congregational partnership with parents at the time of child dedications as well. We want to be committed as a church body to pray for those little ones that we know and that we serve. Number two, modeling. Consider what the young ones in our lives see from us. Um, hypocrisy. Uh, is, raises major obstacles, doesn't it? So there's uh, probably not many things can shoo a youngster away from recognizing their need of Jesus more so than a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do attitude. Are there tangible ways, for example, in which the little ones in your life see you acting out of a sense of your own dependence on the Lord? In ways appropriate to your relationships with the children in your life, do they ever see you digging in the word, praying, repenting? Here's a big one. Asking your kids for forgiveness when you sin against them. It takes humility to ask forgiveness, doesn't it? But kids have great hypocrisy sniffers. And if they sense that what you call on them to do, you have deemed as not good or necessary for you, that at least a turnoff, right? Uh, what are your, I, I don't have anybody in mind here, okay? I have nobody in mind. Um, but what do your kids learn from your example about the priority of gathered worship? 
gathering for Lord's Supper services or baptism services? Do they, for example, do they learn that it's important to gather with the body of Christ unless the NFL season is underway? Do they learn that it's important to go to church when you feel good about yourself and the contribution that you seemingly are making, but it's not a great place to go when you feel like a failure who has nothing to contribute but need? Can somebody say blind spots? Misses the point, doesn't it? The church is an outpost of the kingdom, and need makes the church exactly the right place to be. It's not a disqualifier. It's an invitation. Number three, seize all of life, not just the formal ministry moments for nurturing your children in the ways of the Lord. This is the, some of these have to be done pretty quickly. Um, it's the logic of Deuteronomy 6, which we sometimes uh, uh, quote and, and recite from at child dedication services. Uh, the point of that is, that is that God is the God of all times, all places, all people, even all disciplines. Everything belongs to him. And so parents need to have eyes to see and point the way, even in the mundane and informal uh, moments of life that entirely belongs to the Lord. Along those lines, number four. Don't settle then merely, quality time is good, it's good, I'm not against it. Don't settle merely for occasional pockets of quality time. Here, here's what I mean by that. Um, especially when the, when, the, when the guys are little, um, it's kind of hard to say, you know what, I'm, I, what I'd like to do is I'd like for us to get out our daytimers and I would like to schedule you in for 30 minutes of really pouring your heart out to me in a quality, that's gonna be quality time, in two weeks. Good luck, good luck. Um, in, other words, in other words, we need to be the kind of people who invest lots and lots of informal time, enjoying our children, pursuing relationship with them, moving into their orbit, even if their hobbies and interests are different than ours. And here, here's why, here's why. <clears throat> Often with kids, and, and I found in particular, especially with boys, what's in their heart leaks out, not so much when you're sitting face-to-face -face probing and saying, tell me what's in your heart, but more so in the context of side-by-side -side activities. Sometimes at bedtime, when the dust has settled and things are quiet, that stuff leaks out then. And, and if we would lead children to Jesus, we must pray for and seek access to what's in their hearts. Got a, okay. Uh, but seize formal ministry moments too. Okay, it's not one or the other, it's both. So um, Don Whitney has a book that came out a few years ago called Family Worship. And in his book, he lists the elements of family worship as being threefold. Here they are. It's a super simple formula. It's not intimidating. Read, pray, sing. Read, pray, sing. And it's not rocket science. It doesn't have to be extended with little ones who have tiny little attention spans. It can be done meaningfully in a, in a matter of a handful of minutes. You read a portion of a children's story Bible. You pray the theme over your family. You sing a song, maybe, maybe it's Jesus Loves Me. Maybe as they get older, you start introducing hymns. The point is regular little deposits 
regular little deposits over time. Um, I sort of, <clears throat> I sort of think about about that like. Uh, so we can't circumcise the heart, right? But what you can do to switch metaphors is, I think, as as as, as parents and family, we can put kindling on the fireplace of the child's heart so that if and when the spirit chooses to ignite, it's got really good fuel to burn. It's got really good fuel to burn. I mean, who knows what the cumulative, how many minutes, how many hours would that be from toddlerhood to heading off to college potentially? And what might the Lord be pleased to do with that kind of bringing your child to Jesus again and again and again. And, and of course, along the way, you also help them cultivate habits of developing their own sense of dependent worship on the Lord. Uh, Six. We want to help our children. We want to help ourselves too, right? But we want to help each other. We want to help our children uh, understand themselves as having been made by God and for God, by God and for God. So the modern context in which we live massively misunderstands humans. We get humans wrong in a major way today, who we are, what we exist for, who we were made for. And so in parenting, we do have to push against the false and help to form the true this reminds me of, speaking of hugs, <laughs> I've never met this guy. This is for you, Phil. I've never met this guy. But if I did, or when I do, and I hope to one of these days, I will give him a hug and he'll have to pry me off too. Uh, Jerry Root. Jerry Root. Some of you know him. Um, Randy knows him really, really well also. Um, he, he's probably the, the world's, I, I think it's safe to say he's the world's foremost leading scholar on C.S. Lewis. Is that fair? Okay, I think that's fair. Um, and years ago, when I was starting out uh, teaching at Biola, he would come periodically in the summers and uh, teach his C.S. Lewis class in a summer intensive. And I was, I was just, I was brand new. I was teaching Theology One, and he was teaching C.S. Lewis, and we had a we had a chapel break, and so all of our classes were dismissed to go to chapel, and I went as well, and Jerry Root was preaching in chapel. And I tell this story in my class all the time now. It's impacted our parenting. Um, so he's preaching on um, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he talks about how they used this passage to, to form their girls' understanding of themselves uh, their identity is being made uh, by God and for God. And so they kind of turned it into a catechism question. And, and, you know, Jerry, if Phil tells you to watch this and I don't get all the details right, it's been a few years. Um, uh, so they, they, regularly, they, would, they, they, they taught their girls. They would ask, themselves, ask the girls the questions, what's the most important thing you can do with your life? The answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Great question, great answer. And they would do this regularly, almost like a catechism. Sometimes, he said, that uh, in asking the question, you know, the girls would be not engaging. And uh, mom and dad would come into the room to give them, a, you know, a good night, good night kiss. And um, before mom and dad could even ask the question, they'd just go, a little larger guy with your heart, so mind and strength. Like, I don't want to talk about it. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, 
But on other occasions, on other occasions, uh, it really met with receptivity. And, and he's telling in his, in his chapel message, he's telling on one occasion with one of his daughters, I don't know which one, um, that he goes in to, you know, tell her goodnight and they're spending uh, quality time. And, and he says, okay, so sweetie, what's the most important thing you can do with your life? And she engages um, in a very receptive way. And so, and, and, and so he's like, well, maybe we'll take this another step. And I forget exactly what he said, but it was something like, uh, so, you know, what if, what if loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength meant you had to give up your doll collection? It's something like that. And she goes, um, yeah, I, I, do, I do that, Daddy. He's like, okay, well, let's another step further in. Let's see where this goes. And then he says, you know, something like, sweetie, this will, this will never happen. This will never happen. But what if the day came where mommy and daddy stopped following Jesus and we tried to get you to do the same? What do you think you would do? And he says, so she gets really quiet, right? Real pensive. And she kind of turns away thinking for a moment. And when she looks back, she's got a little tears coming down the corner of her cheeks. And she goes, Daddy, that would be so hard. But I think I would still want to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jerry's like, yes! Yes! <laughs> This is good parenting, right? It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good formation of identity. She, she's being taught. She's being trained who she was made by and who she is made for. The reason for which she exists that transcends all other purposes in her life. It's good medicine. Seven. They won't all be that long. Parental discipline as an ambassador. Parental discipline as an ambassador. Two, two, so two, two quick uh, uh, considerations, to, to, I guess, to correct. Number one, discipline, yes. Appropriate discipline because getting away with it isn't grace. Getting away with it isn't grace. And yet, on the other hand, parental discipline is not about getting even or settling scores uh, or getting back at, right? So a child's problem in his or her disobedience isn't fundamentally with the parent, but with the Lord. You may be the parent, but it is the Lord's law that they are transgressing. So we don't take their disobedience personally, even as we seek to be ambassadors of the Lord, bringing them back into his circle of blessing. Eight, find good ministry partners like those at Grace. It's not a task that can be undertaken alone, can it? There are outstanding resources here. Again, Adventure Week, uh, Children's uh, Sunday School. Um, I asked a couple of our, of our uh, ladies who, who are on the leadership teams and, and serve in various ways with, with children's ministry for some of their reflections on uh, uh, ways that they, they partner with, with families. And... Um, I, mean, I got paragraphs and paragraphs here. I wish I, I wish I could go into the full detail. So here, here's what I will say. I'm going to quote from them briefly. Um, but I would, I would talk to people like Mary Stransky. Um, I'll read something she said here in just a moment. Jan Buck. I don't, are you in this service, Jan? Mary's in North Dakota. 
um, Susan Sanders, who leads our children's ministry. These, these people are heroes, right? Um, and, and of course, they talked about all kinds of resources that the workers in children's ministry, books, uh, tools, uh, chats, they'd be happy to have with you. They would, be, they would be so happy to partner with you, even in more extensive ways than they are already doing. Um, here's one of the outstanding resources uh, about those uh, who, who partner with us at Grace. This is, this is from Mary. This is her, what she says is her most important point. More than anything else in reaching and encouraging the children of Grace is the personal input that children receive from the people of Grace. Children are observers and learners, more than we realize, I think. They notice how people worship, how they interact with others, and are aware of both love and devotion and conflict and dissension in the body of Christ, or if there is a lack of interest in worship. I think the best way to bring little ones to Jesus is by allowing them to observe a congregation of people who love Jesus and are walking in the Spirit, walking, talking, living resources are the best resources of all, in my opinion. That cuts the nerve of hypocrisy, doesn't it? And, and, and it, it's, a, it's a form of discipleship just as they maybe sit in the pew next to you or rub shoulders with you or sit beside you at a Lord's Supper service and watch your sincerity of worship and your, depend, your active dependence uh, in worship on the Lord. That's, that's beautiful ministry. Aren't you glad your children are being led in children's ministry by folks like that? Jan Buck, uh, she gave me a top 10 list as well. Nope, top eight list. Um, I'm just going to read one for the sake of time, but they're all wonderful. Uh, she'd be happy to talk with you. Um, she said, again, just w- how, how helpful to know that these are the kind of people we're partnering with. We are sinners too. We share from our experience of God's love and forgiveness. We wonder again at his loving kindness. In other words, what she's saying, as we lead children to the Lord, we do so as those who are dependent on the Lord. No hypocrisy. So praise the Lord for children's ministers like that. Um, and... And those, those venues, Adventure Weeks coming up this summer, um, great opportunities to plug in and serve. So something to, to keep in mind. Uh, nine, shepherd the flock and each individual sheep. So um, got to know your sheep. And you do have a responsibility. If you've got more than one kid or a bunch of kids in Sunday school class, you've got to shepherd the herd. But you've got to know your... Right? So like... Um, in, in, in some families, for example, you may have not only literally, but, but uh, per the parable of the prodigal son, you may have an older brother and a younger brother, a legalist and someone who is licentious. And they need the very same gospel, but they also need someone with parental wisdom and discernment to make the appropriate point of contact for their expression of, uh, or their experience of need. Ten. Again and again and again and again. All right, just keep doing it. Don't become embittered at having to cover the same ground over and over. It's not a one-time affair. How long did it take you and me to get it, right? It probably wasn't a one-off. Who toiled faithfully and persistently in your life until you did? It might be worth reflecting on your own childhood. What verses of Scripture have been with you for 30, 40, 50 years now? because someone spent time uh, training you in scripture memory? What Bible stories, when you were a little one, grabbed your heart and still have a hold of it today? Again, what people were instrumental in patiently leading you to Jesus? Have we considered giving gratitude to God for those people? All right, I said 10, but I got two bonus ones. (laughs) 
Get more than you paid for. The first 10 were mainly to parents and ministry leaders. Uh, these are um, slightly different segments of the population. So for those who are, who are clearly leaving behind childhood and moving into uh, young adult uh, life, what I would encourage you to be wary of is cultivating the kind of sophistication that belittles those who are outwardly less sophisticated than you and therefore condescends to them. Don't misunderstand me. You do absolutely want to grow up into mature and thinking faith. But you do not want to despise or move beyond humble, dependent trust and awareness of your need as your thinking faith matures. It is very easy to confuse those two things and to draw the conclusion that the way of wisdom requires us to abandon humble faith as we pursue learnedness. That's a common mistake. I would just submit to you that retaining childlike trust while growing mature in thinking is one of the surest signs of belonging to Jesus. I would commend that to you. Finally, to little ones. I don't know if we've got any little ones actually with us in this service or not. Maybe also like elementary and down. Uh, if not, you can share this message with them. If you haven't paid attention to anything, the entirety of the service, pay attention to this. Here we go. This is for you. Come to Jesus. Do not delay. Don't put that off until you're older. You will find him forever faithful as you get to know him better and better. And there are hordes of people at this church who want to help bring you to him. All right. Well, friends, we are desperately needy, aren't we? From the wisest and most credentialed among us to the newest newborn. The question is not if that's true, but if we will recognize it and turn as a result to Jesus. Do you see it? Will you humbly confess it today if you've never done so before? Will you cast everything about yourself onto Jesus and forsake the false hopes of self-reliance and self-promotion? Those are terribly flimsy foundations on which to rest one's soul. What we want to do now is turn to a far better foundation instead as we come now to the Lord's table.